David? Alex, how are you? Yes, great. Landline, welcome. Yeah, thanks. I'm actually calling you from a landline. Yay! everybody, welcome to Landline Podcast. I am your host, Alex McKay. Today's episode is a great conversation with my old friend, David Temple. David and I worked on the Howard Dean for America campaign back in 2003 and 2004, primarily in Burlington, Vermont. We open up with a little political chatter and then get into the major plot points of working for Howard Dean, getting internships in the summer, getting offered jobs and ultimately ending up in Iowa, where we spent all our money and Dean screamed. If you're interested in other episodes of Landline, please go to our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash landlinepodcast. Find us on iTunes or go to the main site, talkforaliving.com. Our theme music is thanks to the wonderful Pitchfork Revolution in Bend, Oregon. And more info after the show. Enjoy. You're this. Yeah, so you're, meta. I think this is landline to landline number two of the you know thirty five or so episodes that have been posted. So it's a it's a special treat. We should I should like post it in gold text when I put it on the internet. <laughs> um, well, I'm excited that you called. I will admit that I thought about canceling because I started to get sucked into the made for TV movie about Bernie Madoff. Oh man, I saw that that was coming out. And I is it a series or is it just like a 2-hour thing? Are they going to like stretch it into like a couple months or how how long are we going here, do you know? I actually have no idea. Well, Richard Aren't there there are real interviews with him, right? No, it's Richard Dreyfus like doing his Dick Cheney impersonation. That's awesome. <laughs> it's good. It's very melodramatic, but like Two people already have had cancer. Andy went and somebody went and saw a rabbi and asked him if, like, there were different levels of sin. And people in Germany are starting to take their money out. They're, like, taking real newscasts from the past and juxtapositioning those against each scene. So, you know, it's quite dramatic. <laughs> um, so are you calling from a conference room at your office? I am, yeah. That's amazing. And how does that feel to have your own conference room? Well, we share the office with a couple other companies. So David's here tonight because we're going to talk about the Dean campaign. Um, and I know he's out in California, so he probably doesn't have the same sort of uh, electric energy around politics that I'm having right now. But there's all the New Hampshire stuff is now permeating through local news and local radio and local public television. So there's definitely like the excitement of the primary happening where I live. What does it feel like in California? Like, are politics anything that anybody's talking about right now? Yeah, yeah, they are. I mean, you know, Silicon Valley likes to think that they know best about, like, just about everything. So, like, you know, I think all the startup folks around here are, like, you know, getting into it and 
having strong opinions about things that they probably don't know too much about, but that's what I do too, so uh, <laughs> uh, it's a pretty natural fit. Is it like a Bernie crowd or people supporting Clinton? I mean, like, basically, is anyone supporting any Republicans? Do Republicans get mentioned? I mean, I have met very few Republican supporters. Yeah. Yeah, do you come across many? Well, it's just interesting because I was having this discussion with a friend today on the phone, not recorded, just a friendly talk with my friend Chris, who's on what the Patriots podcast we do, and we're just talking about it, and he's sort of a Republican, but what's fascinating to me is I'm I'm so disappointed with the Democratic candidates. Like At first, I was like, I can't believe all the Republicans are so bad, but now I'm like, how did the Democrats get stuck with, as, as my friend Chris said, an 80-year-old loon and Hillary Clinton. It's just, it's weird that there isn't a third person that is capitalizing on the two of them being on each poll and then being sort of the voice of reason. You know, you obviously, I love what Bernie's bringing to the table, and we'll get into all this as we talk about the Dean campaign, but it's like Hillary is such a dud for so many reasons in my eyes. And I don't actually want Bernie Sanders to be president. And I don't even think Bernie Sanders wants to be president. But that leaves you with this big void of someone like I can't imagine voting for either of them. So then I start thinking about the Republicans because it's like, well, what if a Republican became president again? Right. I mean, it's just it seems like such a stupid statement, but like that could happen. It's not always going to be Obama. And you look at at the top four and I can't ha- stand hearing them speak. So then I start to get worried. Um, and I kind of wonder where do I go now? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's crazy because to, to like, you know, uh, like underline your point, I feel like a couple months ago when the Republicans were starting to have all those early debates and they were all up there on stage and like Donald Trump and Carly Fiorina were like making fun of each other's faces and how they looked like, I, I, I was kind of gleefully looking at the Republican Party thinking like, oh, you know, thank God they're all they're self-destructing. It's a disaster over there. You know, they're falling apart. The Tea Party is like, you know, completely undermining like the you know mainstream Republican Party and, and driving them like, uh, you know, way to the right on immigration. And, and, and so they just can't win. And then all of a sudden the Democratic Party started doing it, too. And now I think you're right. It's like, I don't know. I mean, it, in a weird way, like Kasich is suddenly starting to seem like an appealing candidate or somebody like that. <laughs> right. And I, I, and I will admit, I don't even know Kasich. You know, that's the other part. It's so distasteful that it's hard to want to be engaged. It's so much easier to mute than to turn the volume up right now. And, but I think the, the last week of thinking about this podcast with you, watching Iowa a little bit here and there, reading a couple more articles, I realized that like my civic duty to be engaged is coming back around and I can't just completely mail it in between now and the general election. And so I better start actually knowing what I'm voting for. But, you know, I was talking, I was saying something about, oh, maybe Chris Christie. And then I just saw a Chris Christie ad and I wanted to, like, explode my TV. It made me, like, so, he just kept on hammering home the point that we need to protect ourselves, protect ourselves, protect ourselves. It's like, yeah, we need to protect ourselves. But is that really the issue that everyone's going to the ballot box for? To, like, make sure that if a radical Muslim comes in, we can, like, light him up with a machine gun? Is that what we're voting on? Yeah. 
totally. I mean, I don't know. That was like a real question. Do you think that's what we're voting on? No. No. I mean, I'll admit, like, when it comes to policy, I actually find myself, like, relatively well aligned with Hillary Clinton. Like, I, you know, and, and I don't even disagree with her, like, uh, with her theory that, like, politics is, is a bad, you know, like, in 2008, like, you know, Obama ran against Hillary and was essentially saying, you know, he was the candidate of, like, hope and change, and we're going to create a whole new way of doing politics. And, like, really, when it, and Hillary was like, no, 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 politics is transactional and, and dirty, and you have to fight it out in the trenches, and it's a dogfight. And, you know, she lost because of that, but I think in a lot of ways, like, she's been proven right. Like, you know, Obama, the only way he's been able to get things done is when he has done, like, Hillary Clinton-style politics rather than, like, you know, trying to rise above you know, partisan divide and all that sort of thing. So I, I actually, like, I agree with Hillary on a lot of things. I just find her really uninspiring. And I think that that's, and, and in a way that actually, like, really scares me because if, she, if, if she's uninspiring to somebody like me, like, how, you know, how is she ever going to win a national election? And, and you know, and... And that's scary because all of a sudden we have, you know, her, we have Bernie who's not going to win. And then if Hillary can't win either, like, yikes. You, you said it. I mean, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. That was it, you're, It's so true. The part about her being dirty, it's like Obama has just jammed things home when Congress has gone home, gone home for, for, like, recess. He just writes executive orders and breaks the rules, and you're so right. So, But I'm going to change the subject because we could do this all night. But why are we talking about this? Listeners might want to know. What do we know about this? And that's the reason we're having the podcast today. David and I spent basically the better part of a year working right next to each other at the Howard Dean campaign, Dean for America in Burlington, Vermont, at the national headquarters. And I thought it would be a great idea to reconnect with David about the Dean campaign the campaign is coming up right now a lot. There's a 10-minute movie coming out on ABC produced by 538 that a friend of mine's friend made. Hopefully we can get the, that guy on the podcast. There's also an oral history that I sent David but didn't even read myself, so he can yell at me about that. Um, and obviously Bernie Sanders. I mean, if you are a just independent voter in Arizona, Bernie Sanders and Howard Dean are probably the exact same person. So... The idea of the crazy left-wing Democratic guy who speaks well but has insane ideas is kind of circling back around 12 years later, which I, I said on a podcast last week that it was eight years, but this is we this was 12 years ago. Um, or I said it with you maybe when we were talking on the phone. So um, we're going to just kind of go through the plot points of what that was like, and I'm sure that will that'll lead to many more aspects of the conversation but um let's start there like do you remember how you first heard about the campaign and how you decided to possibly apply in like march or april of 2003 yeah good question i think i was trying to think about that um before i called you and i can't exactly remember but i i'm pretty i, I know i saw a speech of deans uh not in person but online and what's amazing to me like to your point about 12 years ago, is that like this was before YouTube and before Facebook, uh, which is kind of remarkable. Um, 
But I saw a speech of Dean's online, and I think it was uh, I think it was his his what I want to know speech. Um, and it just got me like really, you know, I think like a lot of people at the time, I really didn't feel like uh, the Democratic Party was standing up for itself. And he went out there and he kept saying, I represent the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. And that just got me really fired up. So I sent in an application uh, for an internship uh, and didn't hear anything back for a while and then got a call actually uh, funnily enough, from a guy who I knew from my high school, uh, Michael Silverman, uh, who was working on the campaign and had seen my resume and, uh, you know, said he'd be happy to have me work for free uh, for long hours <laughs> all summer long. Uh, and so that's how I got involved. How about you? So, yeah, you you and I knew you and Michael always had were closer than than me and Michael and me and you. You two, you you two were in cahoots the whole time. You always sat closer to him. Um, So I remember distinctly and we were joking on email before. I think the beauty of this is that we're only going to remember what we think we remember. And there are other people who are involved in the campaign who definitely have and encyclopedic knowledge of all these details, and we're going to screw up things like people and names and places. And I kind of like that because it represents the essence of what this conversation is about to me. But enough about that. Um, I remember, so I went to George Washington for the first year and a half, and then I transferred to Wisconsin for some reason. It's another podcast. But I had been at Wisconsin for three and a half weeks or something, or excuse me, three and a half months. And I remember that I had been... I or um, what was it? It was AOL messengering with Gabe, who also interned at the Dean campaign that summer, um, and he was Gabe like, was "We yeah, Gabe was there, right? He didn't stay. He was too smart. He went on to winning Emmys, but um, he." was like, let's go to Burlington this summer. And Gabe's always been good at coming up with like, let's go do something that's not just like hang around at home. And it was the, so it was the summer after our sophomore year in college. And I've always been very close with my high school friends and sometimes to my detriment. So Gabe wanted to get a big group of people together to move to Burlington. And so there were, I think, five of us that were living in this house on Cherry Street, or that was our plan. Go to Burlington, find a place to live and live there. And in typical like overachiever or like you know thought my fashion myself a smart kid fashion I thought I would get some sort of you know thing to do not just a summer job I would do something to pad my resume and I felt political at the time and I can physically remember I you know see it in a little flash in my mind uh excuse me I can remember physically filling out the application it was a paper application I think Maybe it was online, but I think I filled out a paper application. Wow. And I and I sent it in from Wisconsin, and it must have been like March or April. I have no idea how they got back in touch with me. But I think the interesting part is, like you alluded to, once we got to Burlington, once we got to the place, it was clear that they would take anyone who was willing to pay for themselves to eat and live and come show up at the campaign every day and do something. So where I had, you know, framed the whole thing as like, I hope I get this internship. And you think about all the context of the articles written about internships and, you know, should interns get paid automatically and are getting taken advantage of. There were people knocking down the door 
to get into that office and stuff envelopes. And I think politics to this day stays in that style where it's the one place where it's like they'll accept anyone who wants to work for them. I mean, there are, there are, there's a spectrum of people working in a political campaign office, um, including some fringe people, no matter who you are, who you're working for. Um, but it was kind of like, yeah, you, you, you want to come work for us? Like, you're in. And I wonder how many people they said no to. Obviously, the fact that we were people who could fill out an application, were going to college and could, I guess, answer the phone when they called, there were three check boxes that they needed. But they needed help. They were growing and they needed help. Um, so did you start working for Michael right away when you got there? Like, you were always on that team? And if you did, what did you start doing? Like, do you remember what you first started doing? Yeah, good question. I think I did start working with Michael right away. And I think um, when I got there, Michael had just started working on the meetups. And I think there were, there were not that many. I think there were a few meetups around the country um, that, had got, that had gotten together to talk about Howard Dean. And, and like, as you know, but you know, meetup was, uh, was this site where you could get together with people on the first Tuesday of the month uh, to talk about, or it was, you know, some recurring time to talk about some passion. And I think at the time, like, the biggest meetup group group uh, was witches, people who, uh, you know, wanted to talk about witchcraft. Um, and they would get together, like, you know, at some time in their, in their local towns and talk in person. It was, like, on, you know, online, taking you offline. And uh, some people had started to get together uh, through Meetup and organized these local meetups, and it would take place on the first Tuesday of the month to talk about Howard Dean's campaign. And uh, Joe Trippi had apparently seen this, that this was taking place, and it kind of said to Michael, hey, Michael, like, go do something about this. Like, we need to organize these people and, and you know, put them to use. And so I think I arrived, like, right around then. It was like Michael had essentially just found out that this was taking place, but we didn't know how to get in touch with any of the people at these meetups. Uh, we didn't know like what they were, whether they were actually like saying positive things about Howard Dean or if they hated Howard Dean. Uh, and there were, I think there were only about, you know, five or 10 of them around the country. And obviously, you know, we had no like budget to travel to them and actually meet people. So we started just like posting messages on uh, the meetup dot com message boards um, with our phone numbers and, and basically like trying to get in touch with these people to figure out what they were doing and if we could help. And little did we know that that would become basically the story of our lives for the next eight months. Like Meetup became we, we became the Meetup office and we'll get into that. But it's Meetup was kind of one of the first platforms, right? I mean, you're you're now in the tech world. You're in the, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, ecosystem to some degree. What what Meetup was pretty ahead of the curve, was it not? Yeah, I I think so. I yeah, I think so. I mean, it's really hard to remember uh, the internet before big internet companies that we now take for granted. Like, it's really it's really difficult to imagine that uh, in 2004, because uh, this was 2003, I guess this was summer of 2003, that there wasn't Facebook. You know and but, like, I know for a fact, like, there wasn't Facebook because Facebook didn't start until 2005. But, like, uh, you know, when you look 
but I, I, rem- I almost like remember there being Facebook. Like it feels like Facebook right. should have been there. Right. It's like um, go. It's like ghost limb syndrome, where you think you still have your leg. Yeah, totally. Um, so I feel like I feel like Meetup was relatively successful back then, but I really, I, I really don't know. I, I mean, it's crazy. It was like a. It, it, well, I think it still exists, first of all, and I think it still has value. So that's another topic, but. People were using, people were organizing on their own. That was what was going on. And they were using Meetup as the tool to communicate with each other, just like you said. And I think that, that you know, I didn't know that detail about Joe Trippi, who was the campaign manager, saying that to Michael. But that sort of brings back all of this remembrance of what he was like, which was like, I don't know what the answer is, but I want you to work on it. And I'm giving you the power to figure out what the situation is and then propose an answer to it. Because this thing is like a million forest fires starting all around us that we're not lighting. And yet it's our job to be like leading them all. So we have to kind of first educate ourselves as to what it is they're doing. And then hopefully be able to like co-op that energy into our effort to elect Howard Dean. But also to get the message out about standing up for the Democratic Party, just like you said. So the summer, that summer, I feel like I did a lot of envelope stuffing. Any person who is kind of like an enthusiast and a, you know, an over talker, like the, the, if you think of me at 19 or 20, I am the perfect candidate for the field department. Like if you have an overeager son or daughter who is politically active when they're 18, like sign them up for the field department and field department basically means like, we don't know what to do with you. But we're going to put you in this bullpen of people who are happy, like standing up, stuffing envelopes over and over again, talking about the issues, having energy, maybe getting to go on some sort of outdoor adventure to pick something up or knock on a door, getting to go to the events, answering some phones, making some calls to voters, making some calls to organizers. That's what I did. I had a list of people I had to call. And so we would see the office was in this in South Burlington, in this tower a Vermont tower, you know, three or four stories high. We had one big floor that we had taken over by the time I had gotten there. And it was just the energy of a campaign office. And I would say that one thing I've told people ever since we worked there is that everyone should go work in politics at some point, just because I do think that there's like a culture and an energy, especially illustrated by our first summer there, that is important to know exists and is important to learn from but it's also sort of important to be inspired by. I mean, when you know that people of all these different ages and backgrounds and points of view are getting together in sort of this open platform setting to do something and that they always don't match up on all of the issues, but that they're there as much to like talk about it with each other as they are to work for this one person, it's a really educational experience, don't you think? Totally, yeah. Yeah, I was trying to think like, what the biggest like career lessons I took away from the Dean campaign were? Uh, I'd be interested to hear what you thought. I mean, one of, I think like the biggest one for me was just that, uh, kind of to your point and what you were just alluding to, like really uh, whoever showed up and just kept showing up were the people who got the jobs, and I, I think that's like been a really interesting. That was like a really big lesson to me at the time like you know in college you always think like you have to it's like whoever is the smartest who like thinks things through the most but it wasn't really like that it was just like 
whoever just, you know, there was that guy, uh, what was his name, Gray? Yeah, um, Gray Brooks. Yeah, who just, like, drove up from Alabama and just showed up at the office and then, like, just, like, kept showing up every day and then, like, you know, got a job and then got a better job. And, like, I think by the end he was, like, a relatively, like, prominent guy in the campaign. Um, and, I, you know, I don't want to take anything away from him. I'm sure he's a smart guy. But, like, I did get the sense that, like, I mean, that was the lesson for me. It was, like, even with the meetup stuff, it was, like, you know, whoever got in touch with us from, you know, Wasilla, Washington, and said, hey, I'm going to this meetup, was the person who we were then, like, you are our deputy. Like, you're in charge. Please do all this stuff, you know? Totally. I mean, the cast of characters, and we could do a whole other thing about that, but just the archetypes of, you know, the local Vermonter person who understands the governor better than anyone and is, like, the issues person and, like, the Beltway insider who's done a bunch of campaigns and, like, sits in there. Remember that guy who sat in the cubicle next to us and he was, like, a political insider? He was, like, five foot three. He wore, like, 80s jeans and a tucked-in golf shirt and, like, white Reebok sneakers. He'd been with Joe before in Maryland and he was probably you know, younger than we are now, but compared to where we were, he was like this savvy campaign veteran. And he played such a, I think his name was, I totally remember that guy. I think his name was John. And like, he was, you know, and that's political campaigns too. Like you, you know, these people for six months and you, people are, you know, eating every meal together. They're sleeping in the same houses together. They're sleeping with each other. Then they're sleeping with somebody else. They're getting drunk together. They're like making mistakes together. They're getting yelled at together. And so you have this intense personal connection with all of these characters, you know, like how, remember, was it Howard Dean's, it's either his sister-in-law who was the accountant lady in the corner office. And she was the one who understood like where all of our cash flow was going. And she was like an Upper East Side New Yorker woman. And it looked like she had been like sent out to the circus and she didn't know what she was doing there and whether anybody there was doing the right thing. But, like, all this money was coming in, so she really couldn't complain about it. Um, so, I don't know. It's just a fascinating cast of characters and, like, a really illuminating thing for a young person to see, for sure. And an old person. I mean, there was that guy, Steve, who had the llama farm in, like, Shelburne. Do you remember him? <laughs> totally. Wartivas. Yeah. And socks. And he was, like, so peaceful and... He loved everyone's energy no matter – he's one of those people who loves your energy no matter where it is and no matter how misplaced it is because he's A, bemused by it, and he B, sees the best in you regardless of kind of how you're acting right then and there. So, all right. So then after the – so the summer happens and Dean goes from sort of someone that David and I knew about and were inspired to apply to work for and, you know, sort of like the upstart campaign guy that we've we've talked about – and then there is that big rally, which I feel like was a major turning point for us in the summer. Remember, he had his like kickoff rally where he officially declared that he was running for the Democratic nomination. In Burlington. In Burlington on Church Street. I don't know what you did that day, but I can remember getting a badge and a T-shirt. And I walked down from the apartment on Cherry Street and I got to like whatever helped set up the rope lines. And that was like the really that was like my baptism into political campaigns. Totally. Wait. So what were so you were mostly like stuffing envelopes until then? Like, were you were you working for Tamara on the? Was she running the field team? 
I was like, I, I, while we were doing this, I realized I was getting lists. I was getting lists of callers to call, but I don't, I mean, there was the whole side story of me and like four or five of my best friends from high school living in this house. We were partying like four or five nights a week. I can't remember if I was going in three days a week or five. I mean, clearly I was going in enough by the end to get offered a job, which we'll go to. But her, I remember getting trained on the phones and we'd have to do phone shifts um, until they kind of hired a main office manager. Because when we were first there, they didn't have the money. You know, one thing we really got exposed to was the building of the organization, and there's no other line of work where an organization is built so quickly and then just like crumbles so fast, right? Like the amount of resources now that we're in business and more mature and, you know, just kind of start to think about all the effort involved in accomplishing something in an organizational sense. It's incredible that everyone got hired so fast and like given new responsibilities so fast over the course of that summer only to have it all be gone you know, four months later, basically. Yeah. Like if you, if you told me, like if you took a, a company, like most startups or whatever, and you were like, that company added a hundred people last year, you know, they went from like 50 people to 150. You'd be like, whoa, they grew so fast. I mean, that campaign went from like 10 people to probably like many hundreds over the course of six months. It's insane, and that's what they do, right? But, but that's also, I think, the ultimate downfall, and we can, we can kind of get there. So I don't remember what I was doing that summer, but I do remember the moment when Tamara got me into her office. Tamara was the head of the field department in the headquarters. Now, at this point, there's Iowa, there's New Hampshire, and there's headquarters, and the headquarters might be the central brain but there are very important people in Iowa and very important people in New Hampshire. And even if you're the head of the field department at headquarters, there's probably someone who is a more experienced, more you know, powerful field person that's not in that headquarters office. It's like it's the headquarters, but at the same time, it's actually not where the candidate is because the candidate is in Iowa and the candidate's in New Hampshire. And therefore, a lot of the powerful people are in those places. But the strategy is certainly coming out of there. So Tamara off asked me into her office and she was like, we can offer you a job if you want to stay here. This is how I remember it. You know, I'm filling it in. And we can pay you, I think, $2,000 a month. And we can give you a place to stay. And you got to feed yourself. And, you know, you got to use your laptop. And you've got your car. And you can have a job. And I'd never been offered a job in my life. I've, I'd have jobs every summer and at school, you know, in high school, pumping gas, working at a tennis club, working in a general store, working in a liquor store. I mean, I'd have jobs, but those were all like, hey, Mr. So-and-so, can I get a job here? And sure, sure, Alex, go ahead. And this was like, we want to hire you. And that was a pretty significant moment. I mean, that was an exciting moment for me. And that led to me saying, I'm not going to go back to Wisconsin. And I'd only been there six months anyways. And I mean, something was happening. It felt like our little window into like, you know, the proverbial 60s. People were excited about something. They were working for something. They wanted something to happen. And I wanted to be part of that, regardless really of what it was. I mean, I believed in the cause the excitement of being there was definitely half half the allure. 
Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I, well, first off, I think I only got $1,000 a month. So uh, <laughs> you, it's like, they must have valued you more than me. I probably, no, there's no way. There's no way they would have paid us different. No way. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I remember being really excited for two reasons. Like, one, uh, I'd been working the night shift at Price Chopper that summer uh, in order to, like, do the unpaid internship during the day. Um, and so I was like... Price Chopper is this, like, really bad discount uh, supermarket that was right across the street from the headquarters. Um, and so, like, I would leave work at 6 p.m. Uh, at the Dean campaign and go across the street and, like, put on my little, like, ape Price Chopper apron and start stocking shelves. And then everybody else uh, from the office would go get drinks and then, like, walk into Price Chopper to pick up, you know, whatever, uh, groceries or... Uh, whatever it was on their way home and there I was like having to ring them up at the cash register which was like just embarrassing and like terrible in so many ways Um, yeah but just I want you to keep going don't lose your train of thought it's it's more embarrassing to me that I wasn't doing that like you should be so proud of yourself like that's why your work ethic might be a little bit better than mine like my (laughs) my parents were giving me whatever to live in that apartment because I had like an internship of worth and I've, oh, and it's, it's, you know, we all have to parent how we have to. And my parents are great parents and that's another larger discussion. But I think, you know, that really gave you some, the, there you learn a lot by doing that. Totally. Totally. I but mean, keep, it, keep it, it going. Was, yeah. So, I mean, that was, that part was exciting just to be able to like walk into price chopper and quit my job the next day. <laughs> um, uh, but more than that, um, you know, it, it, it really did feel, you're right, it did feel like uh, like we were unstoppable. Like at that point, and just the fact that they were offering us jobs and that they could pay us, would, like to me, felt at the time like this, this representation of how unstoppable we were. It was like, you know, like, oh, they're going to be like, you know, we have money coming in from all over the place. We're there, like, offering us jobs. I don't need to go back to school because I'm going to, like, go on this campaign and then I'm going to go have a job in the White House and, like, all this <laughs> stuff. And, like, I remember, like, going home to my, you know, like, uh, my dad is, uh, is uh, I, he is, like, traditionally Republican. Um, I think he's voted for Obama, but, you know, he's, he's traditionally a Republican. And I remember at the time he was super skeptical of Howard Dean. And, uh, you know, I remember just going home and, like, rubbing in his face, being like, yeah, they have enough money that they're offering me a job. You know, we're all, we're going. This is, this is happening. And it was. It was, it, it did feel like our, our version of the 60s, or at least for, you know, my own life. It's funny. It's like, listen, man, we're going to win. We're going to get a job at the White House. If I take this job, I'm going to be president. They're going to make me the president <laughs> at the end of this. Totally. <laughs> David and I will be right back to tell you more about our jobs in Iowa and whether or not we think the caucus system is the way to go. If you're enjoying the show, check out others at our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash landlinepodcast. Please spread the word. Tell a friend. Tell another Dean campaign staffer that we have no idea what we're talking about and our recollection is horrible. Or call the landline, 617-744-1895. Leave a message. We'll get you on the show. Or play your voicemail. Now back to the show. So 
so we took the jobs and our I mean I it was very not dramatic in terms of like sad but it was a dramatic contrast because I left this scene where the Red Sox were also really amazing that summer and me and my buddies watched like every game it was the year that they lost in game seven with the Aaron Boone home run and to the Yankees the year before they finally won the World Series so we were like drinking 30 packs of Bud Light having parties at the Cherry House apartment Cherry Street apartment going it we would drive down to Fenway we like we would we'd watch a game and get so excited we would all get in a car and go to Fenway for the night sleep outside get tickets go to the game the next day um, from the same you know Yankee series or whatever and then they all left and went back to school and we I moved into Cherry Street uh, no wait I'm sorry Cherry Street was where the flop house was and we lived on Buell Street 54 Buell Street well that was a mistake I've been making all podcasts anyway um, so did you, were, but you had a place to live or did you live in Cherry Street? No, so I lived, uh, I had a buddy who went to UVM and, uh, was in a frat there. And so he offered me a room, um, in their fraternity. And that was like, that had plenty of stories, like just on its own. That, that was a riot, a riot. Um, so yeah, I was, I was staying at this fraternity during the summer. The other funny thing that I just remembered that I'd completely forgotten and I can't remember if you were there or not, was that the Dean campaign paid for some of us to go to it, which was the fish, the three-day fish show in Maine that summer, to, like, go talk about Howard Dean with all these people who were at the fish show. I was there, but I wasn't being paid. I was just going. Another example of me just using some sort of summer trust fund to go to it rather than working for it. So I mean, I'm what, pretty sure I had a ticket and then like somehow convinced Tamara or Michael that they should reimburse me for it. Um, but yeah, I mean that, I, I just remember, you know, being certainly not in a sober state of mind, walking around, you know, showing up in people's tents or like little like areas you know, trying to talk to them about Howard Dean. Uh, it, that, I mean, that that to me is like sums up the campaign right there. Like the fact that they, like how chaotic it was. The fact that they had me and my hemp necklace like running around it, talking to other fish heads about Howard Dean. It's hilarious. That, it was a great time. The Northern Lights. That was the outstanding piece of it that I remember. Um, limestone, Maine. Okay, so it becomes the fall, basically. You know, they're the demarcation of school, of college starting back. Neither of us go back. Now, you you were going to Middlebury at the time, and you had started in February, but you still, you, you elected to not go back. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. All right. So we're there. We're staying at our places. And then, really, David mentions meetup earlier. Meetup becomes our major task. So Michael Silverman is the, the guy running meetup the meetup office and David and I are basically his, you know, two underlings. And we are trying to figure out this project of there being all of these people in the United States interested in Howard Dean self-organizing in their towns out of any sort of political structure, not, you know, all the idea of like big data, you're talking about Facebook, all this stuff. There's no tracking. There are just people popping up in places, meeting each other at bars, at pool halls, at 
anything like meetup could be hosted at a, at a bookstore or it could be at a bar like it could be anywhere but when the when the campaign is citing all these numbers of people who are donating through the web which is a brand new thing and who are so you know we have all of these grassroots supporters it was really the meetup people that was the number they used because we could see exactly how many people had signed up for Howard Dean meetups and i you know numbers like hundreds of thousands come into mind but there were all these leaders, like each meetup had a leader and the leader usually ended up being the person who went on to meetup.com first, filled out the form and said, I'm gonna have a Howard Dean meetup. So David and I are charged with, they basically break up the country between, you know, you know, I, I they gave us both a couple of sort of important states, but really we had a lot of like, I remember I had a lot of boondocks states totally and you know a lot of and then we kind of had to make contact with these people and that was not an easy task we were doing everything from designing letter um, letter writing campaigns where we would we would design like a form letter give a template and then send an entire package of stamps paper envelopes all of the templates, like I'm sure pens, anything to these meetup leaders so that these people could get together with a list of Iowa addresses that we had paid for through some political service. And they would have a letter writing party through their meetup. But we were charged with that, which was cool. I mean, we were designing campaign materials that obviously got approved, but it was like using our, our creativity. We were also helping old people turn their computers on in small towns across the country. Like we would have people who had been the meetup person, but then we we're like, okay, well, we got to get you on the email list. And we have this group, this Yahoo group or AOL group or whatever it was, where we we're communicating with all these people at once and you need to be on that. And they would be on their phone in rural Washington, rural Montana, rural wherever, Texas. And we would be walking them through how to turn their computer on, how to find the website, how to open their web browser, how to find the website and then how to actually do the things we needed them to do so we could create some sort of organization. Do you, like, what, what, what's your point of view on all of that? You know, it, it actually, in retrospect, like, it, uh, while it was a shit show, it's actually remarkable to me, like, how much uh, we were able to get done. I mean, I think it must, uh, I think Michael must have been, like, a very effective uh, leader for somebody who was just out of school, um, because we we did. You're right. We got every month. We sent out all sorts of materials that we would hand compile. I mean, we would lit literally like go to Staples and buy all these things, and then ship them to people's addresses that we would have to find all around the country and and get them to figure out what to do with them to get like like you said. I think like you know. 150 to 100,000 or maybe more people doing these coordinated activities on a Tuesday night on behalf of Howard Dean. Um, so it actually, in retrospect, like I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> well, do you remember the mail merge? Because maybe that'll take back your impressiveness a little bit. Do you oh, remember we we would spend we would spend entire days. 
Because so we had all, so they would give us these lists of Iowa voters. And then what we would do is we're like, okay, there's, there's 150 people or 300 people in Seattle at this bar, not to mention the other three bars in Seattle that have different areas of Seattle meetups for Howard Dean, but they're all going to get together and they're going to be pumped to write letters to Iowa voters for us. And that was our big thing. It's grassroots. We're going to write handwritten letters to Iowa voters. By the way, this backfired just like the Iowa storm. People called the campaign complaining because they would get between eight and ten letters a week from the Howard Dean campaign. Their entire (laughs) mailbox would just be crazy motherfuckers in Seattle writing them letters about why they should vote for this crazy... And these people were, like, putting pictures of themselves with, like, Howard Dean uh, materials, like, into the letters... Uh, you're right. It got, it, it totally backfired. It was, it was well-intentioned, but it's great. I mean, look, it's, we went for it, right? Everyone was just going for it. We didn't have time to really talk it over. So, but we would do these mail merges where I can just remember, and I was terrible at it. And you and Michael knew that, and you are like more patient than I am. And you're a little bit more technical than I am. And Michael's very much so, but Michael had all these phone calls, all these meetings. So you were like his deputy on can we get the labels to print? Can we get all of these Iowa addresses to print on these, you know, whatever that famous Avery labels? And so we would work for hours with Excel on our laptops to try to figure out that how to like effectively and efficiently print out 750 labels to be put onto packages. Maybe it was even to be sent out to the meetup groups. I don't know, but... That part wasn't that impressive. Um, so that's what we were doing. We were doing the meetup thing. And for the most part, I mean, there were people who were like fighting about who the meetup group was. But on the flip side, we weren't, the meetup wasn't the Howard Dean campaign. So every time that we needed to, we could sort of take a step back. And I feel like that was also an element of the relationship with meetup. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it, it allowed the campaign a way to, uh, it gave people a way to self-organize, which kept them motivated, but it allowed the campaign a, uh, like a communication channel with those people, which I think was pretty powerful. Totally. So then this is probably, you know, so September we start, September, October, and you, the, the caucuses are in January, just like the caucuses are every year. And just like, you know, it's the end of January. And I don't remember when, but at some point, I feel like, I don't know, did we get brought into tomorrow's office together? It was announced that we had the opportunity to go to Iowa. And, and I think it was less, you have the opportunity. I think it was more, we need you in Iowa you need to be there by Thursday. Right. <laughs> You're right. And so we we went to Iowa and we we went together like tell what's your recollection of us going to Iowa together? Uh good question. We we took my car, right? We took your baby blue 94 Toyota Camry. <laughs> champagne colored. It was champagne. Okay, colored. champagne. We took okay. it I feel like we did it in two days. We stopped in some really sleazy hotel somewhere along the way, and we just sat. It, we just drove on I seventy forever, or eighty, or whichever one that was. 
Yeah, I remember the very end when we were in Iowa, but we still had like four hours to go in Des Moines and it was dark and we were listening to the radio. I can be in that car right now. And I'm sure the hotel we stayed at was some friends and family deal for my dad who owns Sleazy Hotels. So that's definitely the connection there. Um, and then we got to Des Moines, right? We showed up at Des Moines headquarters. And I think in my eyes, because this is how I treat every interaction I have in life, I expected there to be some sort of large fete to celebrate my arrival and, you know, a spread of food. And Alex, we've heard so much about you. We love your enthusiasm. We love your creativity. And we have just the right position for you. But I felt like the second I got there, if memory serves, I had like a deep sense of this. Nobody knows who I am. Nobody knows where I'm from or where I was on the totem pole. And I'm subject to being assigned three weeks of... So yeah, we went in January. I think we went January 1. I'm, I'm, I'm subject to being assigned a task that I won't find very fun. And that was like my immediate sense. But it also might have just been that that's what actually happened to me. So that's how I remember it. Um, whereas as far as I can remember, you were given a good task because you had a car. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the car really helped out. So you did advance. So explain to everyone what advance is and like what you were doing for the the, the next three weeks. Yeah. So we showed up and like you said, uh, it was just a total, it was just total chaos. Like I remember walking in there and yeah, we, and us like, standing in the door of the office, like basically with suitcases in hand, just watching people just run in every direction and nobody even acknowledge us or like have any sort of plan for us. Um, and somehow, I don't remember how, but I got uh, paired up with the advance team. And I think you're right, I think it was because I had a car. And advance is basically going around the state, setting up uh, events before they happen and uh, making sure that the event is going to go really smoothly. So that is everything from figuring out, uh, you know, let Al Gore endorse Tower Dean at this time. Um, so, one of, you know, I remember doing a series of events for Al Gore uh, where we went to all the places where he was going to be speaking, and they were mostly like high school gymnasiums or local like uh, town hall sort of places. And then we'd have to figure out, like, who is going to be standing on stage behind him? Who's going to be sitting where? Do we have enough union people in the shot? Do we have enough, like, ethnically ambiguous people in the shot? And that's not easy to do in Iowa. Uh, do we have, uh, you know, like, are we going to be able to fill all the seats? And if not, we should take some of the seats out because we don't want it to look like it's, like, kind of empty. And then, like, does, is Al Gore going to have his Pellegrino because he only likes uh, he only drinks sparkling water, and he only drinks sparkling water with little bubbles, not big bubbles. Or, like, there are all these, like, little things. And so we drove around doing that, and then actually what was really cool is we, like, went to the airport and picked Al Gore up and drove him to all these events. Um, that is cool. Yeah, you... which was, a, was a, a definitely a memorable part of the campaign. Well... So just to I, I remembered when you started talking about the chaos that the reason I have that sort of feeling of rejection from when we first arrived in Des Moines, I can specifically remember somebody 
we got in, we're like, hey, I mean, it's just so crazy and also so expected now, right? But but we got in there, we're like, hey, we're from Burlington, um, David, Alex, whatever. Okay, we, you know, wait right here. Somebody went in and told somebody else. And at some point during that next hour, we could audibly hear, tell Tamara not to send any more people from Burlington here. We don't need them. <laughs> And that was the moment where it was like, oh, God. Because we had just, like, I mean, we were buddies, for sure. We had had a really good time together. And we had really had a good time driving out. And we had really gotten ourselves excited. And we were winning in the polls. Howard Dean was killing it. And, you know, it was a, it was in October, November, when the thing, when I think that was when he said, it might have even been December, the world is not better off just because Saddam Hussein is dead. And that was like a moment for me where I was like, I really do love this presidential candidate because that's the kind of stuff. I mean, that's the kind of thing Donald Trump would say in Donald Trump's defense. Um, but he basically was like, you guys are playing this game of pop politics with the news media. And you think that all of a sudden all our problems are solved, like invading Iraq is a terrible, was a terrible idea, is a terrible idea. And I'm going to tell you now and I'm going to say why. And of course, it, it became true. And I knew in my gut all along that Howard Dean was right about that stuff. And I feel like that's why I was working for him. So we, we had a lot of momentum coming into Iowa and we were completely out of our comfort zone, like I mentioned. But that 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 thing from that guy really sat with me. And then I found out because I didn't have a car that I was going to get sent to Lamar's, Iowa. So for those of you who don't know Iowa, and I don't really, but it's basically a rectangle on its side with the long side on the top and the short side on the sides. And Lamar's is on the upper left on the corner of the state bordering Nebraska. And the, you know, the local metropolitan area to Lamar's is Omaha. And I went out to the middle of like the most rural part of Iowa. And that's saying a lot. That was a sort of a more conservative place compared to, I mean, Iowa is relatively middle of the road and the conservatives are very conservative. But this was not Burlington, Vermont. This was not parties of Bud Light. This was not hearing about your buddies hooking up with some girl the night before. This was farmland everyone worked at the blue bunny ice cream factory i was staying with these very sweet older people in their probably middle or late 60s in cherokee iowa which is this tiny town about 15 minutes away from lamar's field office the woman would home make donuts in the morning before we got up at like you know six to go to work i would come in the in in on the on the counter of the kitchen were like homemade fried donuts with chocolate frosting that she had made oh my god and she was so sweet and she was like you know she was probably they were both way out there they were vietnam people i mean they were people who were iowa but they they were progressive and they were you know npr people and they loved having us and we stayed there and then the office in lamar's was this like main room of this guy's apartment who had been there for the longest amount of time he probably went to iowa to work for howard dean early got sent out there he and the other guy i was working with were both gay it was an interesting dynamic three guys in a room me being who i am one being a very quiet passive like 
uh, nice, gentle gay guy and one being like, I'm going to meet up with somebody on Craigslist tonight and hook up with them in their car in a parking garage gay guy from Nebraska. (laughs) And me. And it was so fucking weird. That's the only way I can describe it. And I wasn't suited for the job I'd been given. I didn't know how to organize rural Iowans into making a making it happen for Howard Dean. And I didn't know how to connect with them. Um, and I think that, you know, I've grown so much since then in many ways as a person. But um, I really didn't like the fact that I wasn't good at it. And that made me just turtle in my shell. Does that make sense? So here's a question for you. Do you think that, like, this process is actually a good, uh, like, a, a good test for who should be president? In other words, like, you see when, like, Ted Cruz wins or when Obama won Iowa, everyone says, like, Obama won Iowa because he had a great ground game. And Obama had a great ground game because Obama himself was a great like he managed to organize a great campaign and have, you know, he was the leader of what essentially, like we were talking about before, was a uh, com- a, a company or a, a you know group of people that that came together over the course of like a year and suddenly became incredibly organized and incredibly efficient and got things done. Um, and so you could argue that it takes like a really good executive to make that happen and somebody who. Uh, and that is a good, like, stamp of leadership. Um, and also, you know, Iowans then have actually a lot of time with the candidates to, like, get to know them. The other way to look at it, though, is that, like, it really has nothing to do with where people stand on the issues. I mean, I think, you know, Howard Dean, part of his rise was that, like, people did agree with him much more than they agreed with John Kerry or John Edwards. And, and I think that was true in Iowa, even at the time of the caucus, even though Dean came in third behind Kerry and Edwards, it was just that Dean's campaign by the time the caucus happened was a disaster. There were all these people like you and I, uh, like running around the state, and, and we were like probably the, the better end of the spectrum. You know, like there were busloads of people who had come in with like, I remember in Des Moines, there were all these Dean supporters running around with like, you know, who had like, like spray painted things on themselves or like had their hair dyed and had like crazy stuff. And then these rural Iowans being like, or like, you know, even in Des Moines where it's like relatively metropolitan being like, whoa, 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 get out of my face and please stop calling me. I've gotten 15 calls from Dean supporters. And so even though they may have actually supported Dean and supported his stance on like the Democratic wing and the Democratic Party, it was just not a well-organized campaign and that was the downfall. And so I guess that's all a long way of saying, like, do you think that that is a good, like, like uh, proxy for whether somebody will be a good president? Or do you think it's kind of a joke? Well, I think you you I mean, there's so many things to say. Um, I, I think you you brought up something new for me that I've never thought of, which is, is it, a, you know, everyone I was asked, should we be voting there first? And the same for New Hampshire. And that's a discussion that you brought up. But the other thing you mentioned is good. Like it, it does could, you know, show by doing lead by doing. And here's an here's a time to lead a large um, organization on a mission and understand how you should have a message and how you need to market that message, but also like operationally organize, excuse me, 
organizing everyone to work in lockstep towards the goal. And so in that way, it is a good illustration, although you hope by the time you're running for president, you've done many things that way. Um, so, I mean, in some ways it is. In terms of the broader question of is this the way we should be doing it, I keep coming back to this question and I keep answering it with, well, we have to start someplace. Now, with technology the way it is today, like if we really wanted to do like a blue sky, you know, creative session where we just get a whiteboard and we start thinking, how's all the ways we could like do the primary? One of them would be like we could do a random sample of people from different demographics in all in all 50 states, age, sex, you know, um, background, race, whatever. And then we could send out some sort of like internet, like they were chosen the internet lottery to like be the first wave of people to vote on all the candidates and they could, over time, the pyramid would get smaller. But I think the one thing that you made me think of is like, you know how when a celebrity has a house in like a neighborhood where like, or a summer destination and they go to the general store and they're seen at the movie theater, you know, like there's just, you can just think of that like classic story of, somebody famous like being part of a community mm -hmm. at least the people in that town know how to treat that person and so there's like this nice homeostasis of he's famous it's exciting but when i see him at the restaurant like i'm not gonna ask him for his autograph i'm not gonna ask him to sign something and i'm not even gonna like put off that kinetic energy that i know he's there i'm gonna play it cool and iowa knows how to play it cool with this stuff so it's like they might be bored by the process, but there is some value to them knowing how to do it because it does sort of equalize the playing field in those high school gyms and at those town halls where the candidates have to connect on a personal level. And I like that part of it. And if you could keep the personal retail aspect of the politics, I mean, I'm old fashioned, but I I also can defend the idea that like a personal connection is an important thing to have in a political candidate, a politician, someone representing the people. And so I do think that there's sort of a sixth sense that like Ted Cruz is going to suffer from being subjected to, which is like people in New Hampshire aren't going to vote for him because he gives them the creeps. And knowing when someone gives you the creeps, I think, is an important thing. It's an important intangible when voting for somebody. Totally. I don't know. I mean, what do you think it's a good process? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. I, I generally agree with you. I think, I, you know, I think the state, the first state to vote probably should change, uh, like, you know, election to election. Uh, I do think that it's really good that they, the people, that the candidates have to campaign in front of a small, a relatively small group of people, uh, like a lot, and so the, those people get to know the candidates really well, not just on TV, but they actually see them and like hear them speak in person. I do think that because Iowa uh, is is Iowa and it's uh, you know the demographics and all these other. Like there are a lot of problems with it be, always being Iowa and then always being New Hampshire. Um, you know, I, I think it, it would be interesting to uh, have some some more diversity to those early voting states. But yeah, I, I generally think it's good. So here's another question, like piggybacking on that, which is, 
Um, I mean, we haven't talked about the scream yet. Um, like, do you think that that was consequential for Howard Dean? Or to your point about, like, you being in the precincts, uh, like, in your precincts, like, people were just not into Dean when they were voting. Like, do you think Dean was, was already done before, before the scream even happened? Well, right. So I'm, I'm whacking it in, in Lamar's on, you know, Monday night, the, the, the 30th of January, whatever it was. And then I go to a precinct and get that done with, know that we're lost, know that at least my precincts are going to lose because I'm just in a conservative place and getting the reinforcement from whoever my, my like county manager is that like, Oh yeah, don't worry about it, Alex. Like this is going to be hard to turn votes. In, in retrospect, I wish I was a little bit more inspired to do a good job. And also, I wish I was mature enough to do a good job on my own. But anyways, I remember driving to the hotel in Des Moines with somebody. I don't know how I got there. I might have gotten a car. I drove somebody's car. Someone needed their car brought back to Des Moines, something like that. And getting to the hotel, parking, finding parking... You know, God, it's so interesting. Like, there's no no Google Maps. How did I find it? How did I know where the hotel was? Um, getting there, walking in, the party's going on. I've missed the speech because I'm three and a half hours away. But the energy in the room is electric. People are excited. We got third, but, like, we're not giving up. And, like, we got through this one. And we're going to get better at the next one. And New Hampshire is the state where we can win and like this is a marathon not a sprint and you know all the things you pointed out about how the organization was so just young and fucked up like both specifically the people but also like no one even knew what they were doing let alone how to knew it how to do it well and then i don't know if you were part of this crowd but i got in a minivan with tamara and dash and that great Irish guy with red hair, uh, Emmett. And um, we drove from Des Moines back to Vermont overnight. We just traded around and like just made it happen. And I might be mixing van rides because we went back out to Michigan, you know, a month later. But anyways, we started hearing Howard Stern play the scream in upstate New York at like 5 a.m. when Howard Stern was still on regular radio. And we had heard maybe a little newscast about it the day before in Chicago or something like that. And like 48 hours later, everything was fucked. And like I'll never forget, I mean my like the, you know, the hairs on my body right now are tingling because it was just like this crazy contrast between the really genuine energy of that room in Des Moines, people being like, we might have lost, but that's not why I'm here. I'm here to stand up for what I believe in. And then the just like national teardown of Howard Dean. And I haven't even started to answer your question, but no, I think we lost because we spent all our money in Iowa. We spent $30 million in Iowa doing weird shit like sending me out to the middle of nowhere to like be totally awkward and 19 we had the Iowa storm. We printed all those hats. We printed out all those materials. I mean, if we could get a, a you know, a, like the Excel spreadsheets of all of our spending between January 1st and January 30th, I mean, that would just be the funniest thing. Um, remember all those pill bottles that they printed that said like the doctor is in on the side of them? And we just had boxes of them in Burlington that never went anywhere. 
Um, I think he'd lost, but I do think that who's to say that he couldn't have basically, I mean, it was New Hampshire. We were up by like 20 points in New Hampshire on John Kerry. And people in Iowa didn't get Howard Dean from the start, but people in the Northeast always got Howard Dean. They always liked Howard Dean. I mean, and, and just let me take a moment, and sorry I'm monopolizing the time, but, like, the reason people liked Howard Dean was because he was a centrist. It wasn't because he was Bernie Sanders. He was, like, a, bal- a budget-balancing family doctor. He was a hockey dad. He had an A rating from the NRA. He believed in people working for a living. He believed in universal health care. He believed in lower taxes if he could balance the budget. Like, and, you know, he was a great governor of a small state, which is like being the mayor of a big city or a small city in the case of Vermont. But he was not a crazy lunatic. And I think my heart was broken when we found out. I think I remember like 10 days later or two weeks later, whatever it was, who knows if Joe Trippi had been fired yet. But that the, that the ABC News apologized for isolating that microphone in Des Moines. And they said, we're sorry, we didn't play the crowd noise and may have basically misrepresented the situation in the room. And that was just like, great. Thanks, guys. Like, I was in on this thing. I wasn't, like, reading the newspaper and giving 10 bucks. Like, I was fundamentally changing my life around this movement. And if we were going to lose, that's fine. But you just put us in like an accelerator program and fast forwarded us six months and maybe we didn't even get half the things we needed to get on the platform that would have allowed John Kerry to win the election. Instead, you just like shut us down. You said we were freaks and you you said that like the thing we're going to remember about this is this one incident still to this day when you probably don't tell people as often as you would that you work for him because you then have to have the conversation about the scream, right? Totally. So I don't know. I mean, that it's a sad, it was a sad moment. And, and I think that Howard Dean, and I'll shut up after this, and I know you have to go relatively soon, so we should keep going through it. But we're getting through the major points, which are that, to your point, Howard Dean was a great candidate when nobody knew about him. He had to keep, to me, without really knowing the guy, but just being in the inside like we were, he had to keep doing what worked for him, which was being like this guy who rode around in a regular car or an RV with a really small group of advisors to maintain the clarity of his vision and the clarity of his brand. But he never was even asked to manage all of us. He didn't do a good job putting the right people in charge of managing all of us. And all of us is our the campaign in Burlington, the campaign in Iowa, the campaign in New Hampshire, all the meetup people, all of the volunteers, all the Iowa storm. He was never put in a position to manage those people. And nobody else really did either. And Joe Trippi, I think, himself would admit he wasn't really in the business to be good at that either. So nobody ever ran the organization that all of a sudden was there and therefore the organization kind of did what it thought was best and what it thought was best wasn't right for winning. It was sending too many letters and knocking on too many doors and like 
bombastically showing up at farmer's doors in Iowa with tattoos and no rings and, you know, your lesbian partner and having the guy slam the door be like, you guys are freaks. I'm not voting for Howard Dean. And God bless them. I'm glad they were there and I'm on their team. But but the, the people we were trying to attack or, you know, attached to our movement were not. And I digress from there. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's really interesting. I th- it's like, I always got the feeling that, like, Dean had this semi-idealistic or this, like, rosy idea that, like, if his, if his ideas were right and if, his, and if he just, like, gave good speeches and if he, like, kept working hard, uh, like, he didn't need to play the game. And, you know, part of this is probably, like, through the lens of a, like, you know, 19-year-old who just, like, completely adored Howard Dean. But I did always get the feeling, you know, he never did the media training. Um, so he didn't know that he was using a unidirectional mic that night. Like, he didn't, you know, he, he, uh, he, he like, was the kind of guy who was just, like, on, I mean, you know, that, that speech that he gave in Iowa was uh, the biggest speech of his entire career. And ended up being the biggest speech he ever gave, um, you know, in terms of viewership and things like that. And yet, like, he went out there and kind of gave an off-the-cuff speech rather than if you watch, like, Hillary's speech the other night or Bernie's speech the other night, they were so incredibly scripted. I mean, even Bernie, like, you know, he basically did a version of his stump speech. And I think that that idealism, like, kind of ended up biting him in the ass. Like, he didn't... Uh, he, he wasn't prepared for the game. And I think, like, you saw it with, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me how, like, yeah, his, like, we now, like, have written off the Dean campaign as failing because of that, uh, because of the scream. And I do think it had an impact. But, like, there are all sorts of, like, other little details that I think get lost in that. And it's just so interesting, like, what those are. I mean, I remember there was, like, a, and I don't remember what the what which news outlet it was, but there was like a report like three or four days before the caucus. I don't know if you remember this about um, Dean allegedly having an affair, um, and then it was like retracted like a day or two later, um, still before the caucus. But like, you know, like it was in one of the Iowa papers, and you know, had like a bunch of anonymous quotes, and like it was total nonsense. But like, you know, like what kind of impact did that have? And, like, that's totally lost to history now. And then, like, you know, the other thing that I think is interesting is, like, I, I heard, I remember somebody saying um, that, uh, that essentially, like, the biggest consequence of the Dean scream, uh, and I just always thought this was interesting, was uh, that it uh, killed the John Edwards campaign. Um, and because... Dean was supposed to come in first, Kerry was supposed to come in second, and Edwards was supposed to be like a really distant, distant afterthought. And then Kerry came in first, and John Edwards came in like a really close second, and then Dean came in third, and then he screamed. And instead of the story being, wow, look at this like remarkable, you know, like with, with Rubio this week, the story's been like Rubio had this fantastic showing in Iowa, even though he came in third. Um, because people love to report on the horse race and how people do relative to expectations, you know, the, the John Edwards outperformed his expectations, like the expectations of him. And the story 
in retrospect, like very well could have been all that week going into New Hampshire. Wow, John Edwards really did well relative to expectations. Look at John Edwards. And then he could have gone on to do very well in New Hampshire and, you know, who knows where he would have gone from there. But instead, the story all week was the Dean Scream. Uh, so I've, I've always thought that that's like a really interesting take on, uh, on like some of the consequences of, of that whole nonsense. But it did feel, to your point, I mean, it felt like such a kick in the nuts at the time. I, I was in the room during that speech, and I, I did not have any idea that something dramatic had just occurred. And, and no, neither did anybody in the room. You know, I mean, none of us had any clue that, uh, that he had just done anything out of character. Uh, and it wasn't until two or three days later when we started hearing it on Howard Stern and, all, and you know, the news that, that we realized that this was a big problem. Yeah, it's, it's sort of just to pile on the depression about it. Um, and then, by the way, I, I do have to jump in five minutes. All right, five minutes. So, you know, we went back to Burlington and, and, it, and it basically unraveled from there. But I think that the point that we're really taking out of this that is, is so strong to me and interesting to me is that I quickly, and this is, I jump to conclusions as a person and I stereotype as a person. It's like one of the ways that I analyze situations. And for me, people have always asked me, you know, much more so once I went back to college and from there on out, you know, oh, you worked for him. And when the Howard Dean campaign was more relevant was, did you ever work in politics again? And, and I kind of like was always embarrassed to say no. And I didn't really know why. But the the assumption I took out of that experience was like, OK, here's the type of guy I would like to be the politicians in this country. I don't care if his social values would be different if he would be a Republican versus a Democrat. When Howard Dean walked into the office, he was someone who you felt comfortable around and you felt was an authentic person. And he was basically like a guy on earth who felt a obligation to eloquently represent the point of view that his constituents and he felt together. And when that whole thing happened, I made the assumption that people like him would always lose. And so, and I feel like a lot of that assumption is corroborated over since everything that's happened or, or with everything that's happened since then. I guess you could argue that that's not true with Obama, but Obama is a totally, if, if, if Howard Dean was a nightmare candidate, he would have been, to me, a dream president versus Obama, who is a dream candidate, but has elements of being a nightmare president. And it just became something where it was like, I'm not going to think about that experience as much as I thought I would. I'm not going to think about getting back into it as much as I thought I would. And I think some of the gaps in our story tonight reflect that. I just really don't engage with that experience as much as I was convinced I would while I was in it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really well said. I agree. All right. Well, you got to go, but, um, any other comments you want to make? I mean, any putting a cap on it? Great to talk to you. I'm glad we did this. Yeah, this was really fun. Uh, I, I would like to do, I would like to talk about this more. Actually, it feels like really, uh, therapeutic. <laughs> 
All right. Well, David Temple, thank you so much for sharing. We hope you enjoyed and have a great rest of your evening. And I'll slap this together with an intro and an outro and some music and we'll, we'll have it up. Maybe the will be in there. Maybe it won't. <laughs> I think you got to leave it. All right. Well, have a good night. Thank you so much. <laughs> See you, man. Talk to you. Well, there you have it, folks. David Temple, Alex McKay, back again, talking meetup, talking Iowa, talking losing horribly to John Kerry and John Edwards. Aren't we so glad that happened? If you like the show, check out others on soundcloud.com slash landlinepodcast. Sign up for us on iTunes and get automatic updates. Call the landline, 617-744-1895. Leave a message. If you worked for the Dean campaign and you want to tell us we were awful employees as 19-year-olds and we have no idea what we're talking about, I'm telling you, you should just call us up and talk about it on the landline. We'd love to have you. That's it, folks. Music by Pitchfork Revolution. More episodes to come this week with Saul and maybe a little gambling Super Bowl mini pod with Gabe. Have a good one.